We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. I have the distinct honor and pleasure today to welcome Mike Maloney, the founder of goldsilver.com, host of Hidden Secrets of Money, former Rich Dad, Poor Dad advisor, and best-selling author to the show. How are you today, Mike? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Like I say, it's a, it's a real honor to be able to welcome you to the show. Of course, we're going to be speaking today about your new book, The Great Gold and Silver Rush of the 21st Century, but I want to start by, you know, kind of thanking you for being very instrumental in a lot of, you know, really my education coming up when I was much younger through this space, finding the the hidden secrets of money and the production quality, the ideas that you present in it, I think were really helpful. And I've passed that on to hundreds, if not thousands of people at this point. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, the the hidden secrets of money is um, a, a great place for people to start uh, down this road. Uh, it was many years of production, and I've got this great uh, video uh, editor, my producer, director, and editor and cameraman, Dan Rubach, and then two animators, Lincoln Jude and Aiden Magnus, that just do incredible work. And, uh, you know, originally, that series was going to be, we were trying to market it to PBS, but uh, it would be limited in the number of views. We have done much better with it, just giving it away on YouTube. Uh, that series itself has more than 30 million views now. And episode number four, which is the most popular, which is how currency is created, uh, is just about to go 10 million views on its own. And so, um, uh, and it's worth watching. Uh, if anybody wants to understand how cryptocurrencies work, the mechanics behind them, Watch episode eight of Hidden Secrets of Money, and then nine and ten. I am so proud of the work that Dan and uh, Lincoln and, and uh, Aiden did. That uh, I it's that these episodes, some of them are like an hour long, but they are definitely worth a big screen TV and a bowl of popcorn. <laughs> Maybe crack open a beer with it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, episode four is is quite pertinent to right now too, because we're coming back to the the as Danielle DiMartino Booth put it yesterday, the Kabuki theater of the debt ceiling debate, right? Yes, and the debt ceiling is in there. However, I do have to say we're going to we can't modify something that has already been done, but there is a correction, and we're going to put up uh, some sort of label on the screen. Uh, the portion where I show. Uh, somebody depositing currency in there and they keep 10% of it and then they loan 90% of it out and that goes into another bank and 90% of that gets loaned. That's actually incorrect. That's what was in textbooks. That was Milton Friedman's description. That was what was corroborated when, you know, I've toured all of these national monetary museums, a whole bunch of them. And the Bundesbank in Germany is probably the best one. And this was their description of how the money multiplier works and fractional reserve lending. And it's wrong. It's all just double entry bookkeeping. Uh, you find a, a, an asset, uh, you find a piece of collateral. You want to buy a house. You bring the bank. This is the house I want to buy. I need to borrow a million bucks. 
the bank looks at the house, they go, okay, that's worth a, a million dollar loan. And they look at your ability to pay it back. And they decide to make the loan. So they just imagine this currency into your account. They don't loan anything that already exists. Banks don't loan anything that exists. They imagine whatever they're loaning into existence and then type those digits into your account. And when you really do some digging, like, you know, there's um, Bank of England came out with a paper called uh, uh, Money Creation in the Modern Economy. And in there, they admit that everything is just IOUs, that there is nothing else but IOUs. And the digits in your bank account are reminders for the bank to pay you IOUs. They aren't even IOUs. They're reminders that the bank owes you IOUs. What IOUs does it owe you? It owes you British pounds, you know, in the form of paper notes or Federal Reserve notes or whatever, which is an IOU from the central bank. <laughs> so the whole monetary system is it's basically we have been monetized. Uh, we don't use this. One of the things the book starts with is the difference between currency and money. And I've been pounding the table on this since 2006. Uh, well, that, you know, that that's a that's a very important distinction. And that's something that actually I kind of wanted to to start with, because it's that's actually something that I adopted even before I started hosting this show and try to be very accurate with. So why don't we start there? What is the difference between currency and money? Uh, well, currency has to be a medium of exchange, a unit of account. It's got to be portable, durable, divisible, something called fungible. Fungible means uh, interchangeability. Like if you loan me a $20 bill, I can pay you back uh, a completely different $20 bill, or I can give you a 10, a five and five ones. You don't care as long as you're paid back any 20 bucks. That interchangeability is fungibility. Uh, but money has to be all of those things plus a store of value. And uh, if if you're paying for something and it costs you twice as much this year as it did last year, you are paying with currency, not money. Uh, money can store value over long periods of time. Currency cannot, by its very design, store value over long periods of time unless we're going into a deflationary implosion. And then it's not a long period of time anyway, but it will actually increase in value for a short period of time. But currency, the difference between what I call honest money, honest money so far is gold and silver. These are the only things that throughout history, if you look at the last 5,000 years of mediums of exchange, the predominant medium of exchange has been gold and silver. For the last 2,500 years, they've been money when they were refined into separate, you know, there was electrum before that, mixtures of gold and silver, different period, period, different purities. And once they were separated into pure gold, pure silver, and then minted into coins of equal weight, now you could put a price on something. That's when money came into existence about 2,500 years ago. Uh, and I've got an old uh, Pegasus coin from 500 BC on my desk, and you can melt that down, and the silver in it uh, has purchasing power. Now, it'll bounce up and down in purchasing power depending on how in favor or out of favor gold and silver are, but they never ever go to zero they bounce up and down in this purchasing power range 
and right now they're very low in that range because we've come up with all these different other uh forms of paper wealth there's paper dollars there's stocks there's bonds there's just all these different places that you can actually store your purchasing power in uh and then there are these moments in in time where the population gets scared and everybody rushes back to real money as a safe haven and their purchasing power increases astronomically uh in the bull market of the 70s Gold went up 25 times its initial price, and this was eight and a half years. And silver went up 41 times. That was actually the biggest bull market in history to that date. And and until and then later, we've had uh, cryptocurrencies have been bigger. But uh, the the gold rush of the 70s was the biggest bull market in history. Now the difference between currency and money, honest money. When you make a transaction, you're trading something for something. It's honest, it's fair, it's not fraud. Uh, to create a gold coin, there's a whole bunch of time and effort put into prospecting, finding a claim, turning that claim into a mine, mining the ore, refining the ore into uh, and pouring it into gold bars and melting those bars and, and minting coins. For you to uh, acquire enough coins, say, to buy a house, you put in an equivalent amount of work that at whatever pay scale you're at equals the amount that it took to make that coin. Otherwise, they won't make the coins. And then you buy the house and the value of the house, the, the time and effort it took to uh, dig up the dirt to make the copper for the plumbing and wiring and refine that and the uh, the cement for the foundation and cut the uh, trees and turn them into timbers to build the house. That work equals the work that you put in, which equals the work that the miner put in to create the gold. So it is a fair transaction of equal values. With currency, you go into the bank, like I said, you say, loan me something, and they imagine this into existence, diluting the existing currency supply and transferring wealth from anybody that's holding currency to this newly invented currency. So that's theft. And then you're going to buy a house with nothing and you're going to get something for it, and that's fraud. And so that's the difference between honest money, gold and silver, and fiat national currencies. So, Mike, you know, one of the big, you know, themes that you just mentioned there a couple of times was the idea of value. So how should we be thinking about price versus value when we're looking at any of these assets over time? Okay, well, value, for instance, um, if you're in a decade, let's say your home doubles in price. Did it double in value? Well, if you're going to measure it against other real estate, absolutely not. It didn't go anywhere. If you sell it, you could buy one about the same in the same neighborhood for the same amount of dollars or whatever you're measuring it with. If you're measuring it with um, uh, money, gold and, and silver, or if you're measuring it with barrels of oil or groceries or gasoline, if you sell that house and you can buy twice as much groceries and gasoline with it, or shares of stock with the, the proceeds from selling that house. But if over a 10-year period of time, let's say, the house doubles, but the stock market quadruples, that means the house doubled in price, but its value compared to stocks fell by 50%. Because when you sell this the house, you could only get half the the amount the shares of stock that you could have gone, gotten if you had just spent 
the currency, even though it was half the amount of currency, you would have gotten twice the amount of shares of stock. The same thing goes with like if if uh, inflation is raging, your house doubles in price and uh, you sell it and uh, all the groceries and gasoline have quadrupled, you can only buy half as much. So the house doubled in price, but went down 50% in value while it was doubling in price. That's the difference between price and value. And there was a chapter that I was uh, writing for this book, The Great Gold and Silver Rush of the 21st Century. Uh, and I was uh, explaining this in detail so that people can really get it. And I've got charts on all of these different uh, um, uh, asset classes, uh, gold, silver, oil, uh, stocks, real estate, uh, and several other things, going back into the 1800s, so more than 100 years worth of data. And what, what you see is that not, when you measure stuff with other stuff, nothing goes up permanently. Everything appears to go up in, in price. They, it keeps on going up and up and up. I mean, a house back in the Great Depression, a single family median price home might have been $2,500, $3,000. Now it's $300,000. Uh, so it's 100 times higher than it was then in price. Uh, the house actually, though, for the number of work hours it takes to buy that house has actually gone down. Uh, this is the currency changing, not the uh, the house. The house didn't change. Uh, so it, with this uh, chapter that I was writing, it ended up being like a 100-page chapter. And so I had to take that out of the book. It just put too much space between buying the book that says gold and silver on the cover and getting to gold and silver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was... Uh, and it became a, a book on its own that I'm hoping to publish uh, sometime in the near future called Wealth Cycles, because everything runs in these waves and cycles. One asset class outperforms another one for a certain number of years, and then uh, one becomes too overvalued, the other becomes too undervalued, and they switch mm-hmm. and get a bull market in the... And so it's it's gold and silver's time, basically. Uh, you know, they had that bull market in the 70s, and in the middle of that bull market, there was a, a huge correction, a mid-cycle. This is a secular bull market, and let me turn the chart around for you. So it rose up to the end of 74 and then 75 and into mid-76. It pulled back by 50%. It rose to 200, pulled back to 103, and then took off, and in the next uh, just few years, it went to eight, uh, 873, actually, was the intraday high on the Chicago Board of Trade, uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Um, and uh, and so uh, then it went into a 20-year bear market. Well, we're in this very, very long secular bull that is larger in mag- both magnitude and in time than the one in the 70s. And we've been in a pullback. This uh, mid-cycle correction now has lasted since 2011. It's getting a a little bit boring. But this uh, huge shift from uh, other asset classes into gold and silver, that started in 1999-2001. And uh, it continues. I consider it one big cycle. And one of the things that I was determined to do 
when I started down this road is not to let the bull buck me off of its back. So even through the mid-cycle correction, I've just stuck in there, in there and added to my position, and I will continue to do so. And I have a feeling that over the next just few years, uh, one, two, three years, that we're going to see some huge rewards, uh, especially as we go into the next crisis. And there is a crisis coming because you can't manipulate the economy as much as they have and distort it as much as they have without consequences. Well, you know, I think that's a, a good point to kind of cover next. One of one of the more important points, I think, for people to understand is this new currency creation, as you called it, theft, really. After 2008, there were many rounds of QE or money printing, yet that wasn't really reflected in consumer price inflation. So where did that much of that currency end up going? Well, if you read the book, uh, especially chapter four, which is available free online at ggsr21.com, chapter four shows the mechanics of how currency is created. And the Federal Reserve is when, when they create currency, they decide they're going to purchase an asset. And when they purchase that asset, currency magically springs into existence. They just imagine a billion dollars into existence and they buy a billion dollars. But they are handcuffed by the Federal Reserve Act to only buy in the open market, they call it. Well, I believe that Congress established this so that there would be a bidding system and it was guaranteed that if if they were acquiring assets through this currency creation, they would be getting the lowest price and not be able to show one bank favoritism over another uh, things like that. So that's probably the reason that that is in the act. But this means that they have to buy through the, their open market is different than the open market that we play in. We play through brokerage houses and on exchanges. They have to go through this network of primary dealers. There's usually somewhere between 18 and 30 of them. I believe there are 25 right now. Uh, and so these are some of the largest brokerage houses in the world uh it's and investment banks or bank holding companies but they are all non-bank entities they are not banks that are the primary dealers although most of them are very closely associated with a bank like b of a securities is associated with uh, bank of america incorporated which is the bank uh, uh the same thing with uh uh ubs and and uh HSBC and and uh, so when they purchase from a primary dealer, the Federal Reserve Act also limits them to purchasing only purchasing things that are backed by the U.S. government as to principal and interest. They have to be guaranteed by the U.S. government, which which means they're guaranteed by your taxes. If if anything is guaranteed by the government, it's guaranteed by you. <laughs> uh, well, not you you you're in Canada, but. <laughs> uh, uh, a little different little different situation but same thing (laughs) same thing yes right uh so um anyway uh that means they're restricted to buying u.s treasuries and uh, mortgage-backed securities that are guaranteed by fannie mae and freddie mac against government-sponsored entities Uh, and so they're buying through these brokerage houses and they're buying these assets the broker the Primary dealers also deal directly in the treasury market. They also, one of the requirements for them to be a primary dealer is that they have to show up at the treasury auctions and make a market in treasuries by bidding on them at competitive rates. 
And so the Fed Reserve wants to uh, create a billion dollars and stimulate the economy. They tell the primary dealers, I'm looking for a billion dollars worth of U.S. treasuries. Uh, and the primary dealers come back with bids and they're buying either from the treasury or from the open market. They can buy from an exchange or another brokerage house or a pension fund or whatever. But the point is that all of this newly created currency is going directly into the markets. It's not going out to Main Street. It's going through Wall Street. And so all of the currency creation that we had from 2008 to 2018, 10 years of currency creation, uh, only stimulated. They were having trouble creating inflation, yet they were creating vast amounts of currency. But they created enormous inflation in the stock market. When base currency rose by uh, 10, base currency is the currency that the Federal Reserve creates. There's two forms. There's bank reserves and there's the currency in circulation, the paper notes that we have in our wallets. Um, the paper notes were the vast majority of base currency. Uh, about, um, I believe it was 800, it was a, under a trillion dollars worth of uh, currency in circulation back in 2008 and only about $40 billion in bank reserves, uh, the base currency that is used only between the banks for interbank settlement. The public never sees or touches that currency. It's like a whole separate monetary system. But that's the, that's what the Federal Reserve creates. The rest of it, the stuff that we use in our bank accounts and stuff, is all bank credit currency created by the banks whenever we take out a, a loan. So when the Federal Reserve creates uh, this, when they buy an asset from a primary dealer, if they're trying to stimulate the market through QE, uh, they pay that they can't pay the primary dealer because the primary dealer doesn't actually have a bank account. It's a non-bank entity. So they pay the primary dealer's bank, the correspondent bank, they call it. And then they instruct the bank to create bank credit currency. So for every dollar worth of stimulus that the Federal Reserve does, you know, it used to all be either cash or vault cash was the currency that the Federal Reserve created. Bank reserves was only about $40 billion. It hit a peak of $4.2 trillion uh, just a few years ago. It's about $3 trillion today. Uh, but uh, when they do this, when they through QE, these bank reserves become trapped in the reserve accounts. And uh, that becomes very important when you get to interest paid on reserve balances. <laughs> so uh, it's it's all, a lot of this goes back to a speech that Ben Bernanke gave back in 2002 called Deflation, Making Sure It Doesn't Happen Here. And uh, I did a video sort of decoding that speech. But I sort of arranged my life around that speech because he gave us a roadmap to everything that was going to be done in the next great financial crisis, which came in 2008. And he listed, I can't remember, it was like 10 different things. They've already done like seven of those 10 that were extraordinary. Uh, you know, they, they were manipulations that they had never done before. And it has warped and skewed this economy and we haven't paid the full price for this yet. Uh, the economy is severely out of balance. Uh, the market will try to put this back into balance, but when it does, it's going to be a very painful process for most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you as you bring up the the Nobel 
Prize winning economist Ben Bernanke. What were some of the the levers that he pulled in 2008 after the great financial crisis that the the Fed really didn't touch or even have available to them before then? It, it seems like we not all of the problems that we're facing today emerged after you know decoupling from the gold standard officially in 1971, but a lot of these financial corners that we find ourselves in and facing are a result of this two of a lot of these 2008 decisions when Bernanke was head of the Federal yeah. Reserve. Well, nobody can possibly foresee uh, all of the consequences that can happen when you mess with the, f- the free market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he didn't there. There's a lot of stuff that he didn't think through. And there will come a day, I believe, in the future where monetary historians look back and are just in awe that the that the man that came up with the ideas that actually crashed the global economy when they're looking back at this after the event uh also won the Nobel prize for those very same ideas <laughs> it's totally insane but one of them is uh QE uh you know um we have like I was saying, they buy through the primary dealers. Uh, they have to buy uh, assets from non-bank entities. It says so in the Federal Reserve Act. They're not allowed to go directly to a bank and buy assets from them. And when they do that, they pay with bank reserves into the banks, the whatever bank that uh, non-bank entity, the primary dealer, is using. And the bank is then instructed to create bank credit dollars and credit it to that non-bank entity, the primary dealer's account. And so they do that, but now there's this extra dollar that is trapped as reserves and they pile up and it reached a peak of $4.2 trillion at one point. It's down to about $3 trillion now. But when we were doing QE, interest rates were um, 0.25%. But the effective rate, the actual rate, if you measure what the banks are loaning to each other at, that was when we were having trouble uh, creating inflation. And the actual effective rate was like uh, 0.08 or 0.1. And so uh, the amount of, when, when Ben Bernanke decided that because there's all this uh, these reserves in there and they don't want the banks to do anything with this. Uh, he decided we have to pay the banks interest. This does give the federal reserve another method of control over the currency supply, uh, when they're paying interest on reserve balances, but it also comes right out of our pockets, the taxpayer, uh, right now we're paying the banks, you know, Ben Bernanke, gave them this currency. The banks didn't even want it. The banks do want it once it started paying interest. When it wasn't paying interest, it wasn't an interest-bearing asset to them. When we started paying interest on reserve balances, uh, at that point, this was something the banks really want because it rains. Right now, if you take the Fed funds rate at 4.6% and there's $3 trillion of reserves out there, we're paying the banks $11.5 billion every single month. What could you do with an extra $11.5 billion a month? Uh, so we're paying this to them. And it's very high power currency because uh, the banks didn't do anything 
to earn this. They didn't have to have an employee, a desk, uh, pay for power, computers, internet service, all of the stuff you know uh, that they would normally the expenses that would have they would have to earn this currency. So we're paying them. It's about 130 billion dollars a year. Now, where is that coming from? How does the Fed uh, pay this? Well, they can't just create the currency. People think, well, they'll just print it. No, they have to have, they've got a balance sheet for every liability, which is the currency they create, they have to have an asset. So they buy an asset and create currency at the same time, and, and they've got an equal amount of both in their balance sheet balances. Uh, the Fed has profits. What are, where do the profits come from? All of the assets that they buy pay interest mortgage-backed securities, and U.S. treasuries. However, uh, according to the Fed's charter, the, the Federal Reserve Act, it's supposed to first uh, deduct all of its exp expenses and then pay all of its stockholders. because It's got stockholders because it's not part of the government. It's, it's a, a government creation. It's government sanction, but it is not part of the U.S. government. It's owned by all of its member banks that have to buy stock in the Federal Reserve. So it pays them a 6% dividend. And then whatever is left over goes to the Treasury every month and pays it. It helps to either reduce the amount of deficit or pay down the debt. If we've got a budget that is in balance, it'll, it'll pay our national debt down. Well, that isn't being paid to the Treasury. Instead, it's be, being given to the banks. <laughs> And that means that the Treasury then has to issue more bonds to make up for what would have been a, a cash inflow to them. Uh, and uh, that means when they issue bonds that you've got to pay for it with your, your taxes in the future. So the bill all comes to the taxpayer for this free. And Ben Bernanke didn't, didn't think this through. Uh, so... When we are doing QE, we're creating massive quantities of currency, and the banks end up with all these excess reserves just stuck in the system. And then when we stop QE, and act like Jerome Powell acting really tough, he's going to raise in, he's going to do a Paul Volcker and raise interest rates above the rate of inflation and get tough on inflation and break the back of inflation. But when he does that, he's, it just starts raining free currency on the banks. And that is what is what has caused, I believe, you know, I put it in my book and this was all finished like last October and we were in this the, a bear market at the time. And if you look at the uh, the indexes like the S&P or the Dow, uh, there is a downtrend that was hitting this line. Well, it broke above the downtrend and that's a very positive sign. And I had predicted that because that is one of the... Uh, the side effects of raining free currency on the banks <laughs> the, uh, is that the uh, some of it flows into the markets. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think Ben Bernanke uh, is the one that has that is most responsible for the jam that we find ourselves in today. And this is a predicament. It's not something that they that we can get ourselves out of without a giant crisis. Mike, I think we, if we could spend a little bit more time on the idea that the Federal Reserve isn't making their remittances to the Treasury, that's a relatively new phenomenon. There's a, a chart that you have in the book, and we've touched on it before on the show, where 
the Federal Reserve is making making their in some way like installments to the Treasury, and all of a sudden it's just gone through the basement. What is as the importance month after month losses just stacking up as the interest rate goes up? They have to pay the what they were giving to the Treasury to the banks, mm-hmm. and that happened when the interest rate crossed like the two and a half or three percent uh, line. Once that happened, the Federal Reserve started going negative. They have no more profits. They only have losses. So, so, but as part of that, you said that the the Treasury is now going to have to issue more bonds. So, what is that going to do to the bond market? Well, it isn't that big a percentage of the total bond market. And now you've got me trying to think on my feet. And I like to think of myself as a deep thinker, not a fast. Thinker. That's fair. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I could uh, think about this problem for a while and and. Uh, try because the way I think about things, I try to see a whole system and and how everything flows. Because uh, one of the things about Keynesian economists is they really think that you can stick a straw into outer space and suck in economic energy. Uh, <laughs> and you can't. It's a closed loop. And whenever you create currency, you're stealing purchasing power from elsewhere in the economy. It, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, this was the big blunder that John Maynard Keynes, you know, there's chapter two is called dumb mistakes by smart people can make you stupid rich. Uh, and that is based on John Maynard Keynes's idea that all the government has to do is whenever we have a economic downturn, just create a bunch of currency and do deficit spending and it'll lift us up out of that economic downturn. Well, that purchasing power uh, has to come from somewhere. The thing about Keynesian economics is it sort of views um, the true wealth of society, which is all the goods and services that we create for one another, uh, from they they view that separately from the currency supply. And they think the currency supply is wealth in and of itself, and it's not. It's a it's a tool, it's a temporary storage device for value, and it's a medium of exchange in the fact that uh you know it's it's um a unit of account so you can put a price on something and then you can use it to te- to make a trade and temporarily store value and then you're going to buy something else with it later our goal in life isn't to accumulate a whole bunch of currency it's to put a nice roof over our heads drive a nice car uh be comfortable and to eat nice food and so on and so the, that's the true wealth, all of those things. And like, you know, I interviewed um, uh, Steve Forbes years ago, uh, and he said, uh, you know, the, the, that currency is a claim check on, on real stuff. And, uh, if you, and he compared it to a coat check. When you go to a nice restaurant in a cold area, there's always a coat check right near the front door where you can check your coat. They give you a claim check. And Steve says the Federal Reserve thinks that if they print more claim checks, more coats will appear. (laughs) And that is exactly the misconception that Keynesians have. And this is your opportunity. Uh, The opportunity wouldn't exist without this horrible blunder that we are all following down this road with all these Keynesian economists. And there's also a piece in the book where in chapter two, where uh, the the Keynesians are about to get a schooling. They're going to get a schooling from the Austrian school of economics. 
because it's it's uh, like voodoo economics compared to real economics, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. We're, we're touching on so many different topics, um, but I'd like to kind of stick with a little bit of that the the inner workings of the Fed and the and the Treasury for a little bit. While doing research for the book, you came across an anomaly when the Fed started buying mortgage-backed securities that you've come to call doppelganger dollars. So what are the steps involved in the creation of these double IOUs? Okay, so um, now uh, in there, I also said I may be wrong on mm-hmm. this. And there is a process uh, in there that suggests that I might be wrong. So I put that in there. It's another reason that the uh, chapter is free online at uh, ggsr21.com is uh, because I may be changing the chapter later if I find, because the thing about writing a book, you you have to put a lot of effort into it, a lot of work to make sure you're right. Because if you're wrong, you're going to be wrong forever. <laughs> if you're wrong uh, on some article you write for the internet, it's like, uh, putting this thing into a 200 mile an hour wind. You write the article, you put it out on the internet, and it's gone the next week. And it doesn't matter if you were wrong. You've got a whole bunch of chances to be right again. But if you're wrong and you put it in a book, you're wrong forever. So uh, it, it's a, a great discipline. Robert Kiyosaki uh, wrote a book called Teach to Learn, because if you're going to teach something, you had better know it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so. Uh, getting back to the doppelganger dollars, uh, you find a house that uh, you want to purchase and you go to the bank and you say, I, I need to borrow a million dollars. And they imagine a million dollars into your bank account. You pay the seller. You've now got the house. The bank has a lien against the house as, as the collateral for the loan. Those dollars that you paid the seller are now out in circulation. The bank then takes that um, the the loan and uh, we'll spin it off and sell it to some brokerage house or some entity that will package it up into a mortgage-backed security. Uh, then the Federal Reserve comes along and says to one of their prime to their network of primary dealers, "We want to buy some mortgage-backed securities." They go and find that uh, mortgage-backed security that uh, also contains, you know, it's got a whole bunch of loans packaged up in it. But uh, one of those loans is your mortgage, and they buy that. And they pay with base currency. And so uh, the base currency is created, credited to the uh, bank, uh, the bank's reserve account of the bank of that primary dealer. The bank then creates a bank credit dollar. So now there's two bank credit dollars in circulation out in the public and one dollar of base currency in bank reserves that got created. Now, Every bank has a balance sheet and the balance sheet has to balance. If the bank gets that's got your loan originally, the originating loan, uh, it gets if somebody buys that from the bank, the bank now has an asset that is gone. That's that loan is their asset that's gone. The other side of the balance sheet is uh, the cash that they had created. Uh, so when they get paid cash for it, that cash really should disappear off of the bank's balance sheet as well, and M2 shouldn't change. However, if you refer to the next chapter, the $7 trillion theft, not chapter, but the next part mm-hmm. inside chapter four, I think it's part five of chapter four or part six, uh, uh, the $7 trillion theft, 
you'll see the Fed's balance sheet, uh, the Fed-owned assets, which is mortgage-backed securities and U.S. treasuries, minus the ones that are used to back the currency in circulation. So because you have to take that out because that currency is in circulation, it's not in deposits. And there is this huge gap. Uh, normally, in uh, the society we lived in until 2008, loans and leases created the currency. And so you would have uh, loans and leases on this chart going up and deposits would be just above that. There's a couple of other things that can create uh, currency, but it's very, very minor. Uh, so it would be these two lines tracking each other. And so then suddenly in 2008, they diverge. Deposits kept on growing. Loans and leases shrank and then started to recover. But there is a $7 trillion gap. Uh, the Fed's uh, assets were $9 trillion and, and $2.1 is the currency in circulation. So $7 trillion is this gap between deposits and loans and leases. Uh, it's like a third of the currency supply has, you know, the currency supply, an extra 50% was created on top of what already existed uh, above loans and leases uh, in QE. Now, those mortgage-backed securities are 2.7 trillion of that. And the originating loan, those dollars are in circulation also. And so, uh, you know, I'm trying to track this down. It's not easy. Uh, I'm hoping that somebody out there will confirm these things because there are there's the way that the balance sheets are supposed to work, this shouldn't be creating the extra currency. But if you look at the gap between loans and leases and deposits, something created that amount of currency, and it's out there in deposits. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to reconcile that right now. I may end up modifying uh, chapter four uh, in the future. That's one of the reasons it's online. The other reason is Chapters, chapter three is online simply because somebody that really, really knows charts uh, doesn't necessarily have to cover that chapter because it's about how to read charts and how charts can be used to lie to you, to skew your perception. There's also some great information. The example charts that I use, you know, I started out with every picture tells a story, as Rod Stewart said. Uh, and uh, a chart is a picture of numbers. And I'm fond of saying, if uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, then one chart can be worth a million numbers, because that's all it is. You're taking numbers and turning it into a picture. I'm dyslexic. Um, the the uh, education, public education system completely failed me. I'm mostly self-educated. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of proud of it, because like episode four of Hidden Secrets of Money, there's economics teachers in college using that as some of their... Uh, so uh, it's being used to teach economics now from somebody that uh, didn't graduate high school. And uh, uh, but the thing is, uh, the dyslexia did give me the ability to sort of uh, visualize flows and, and try and solve problems visually. Um, but uh, like I look at a table of numbers. I can't make heads or tails of it. It's just wallpaper to me. <laughs> Put those numbers into a spreadsheet and generate a chart, and suddenly, oh, my, man, I can see the whole picture at that point. Mm -hmm. And I can 
tell how it relates to other charts that I've seen in the past. And doppelganger dollars don't actually exist, then something else is making up for this $2.7 trillion difference between loans and leases, the, the excess difference above the treasury bonds, the, the, the treasury bonds, bills, and notes that the Federal Reserve has purchased. Uh, so this is something where I did say that um, that I might be wrong. Please let me know if I am, but it looks to me like this is the truth. And uh, and I just can't figure out how there's any other way than this. Uh, there's a, a huge portion of the currency supply that has stolen wealth from Main Street and transferred it over to Wall Street. And through this process that Ben Bernanke came up with, uh, and uh, uh, it is a major, it's a $7 trillion theft, 2.7 of which is these duplicate dollars. And the thing is that um, uh, all of the dollars in existence, with the exception of if these do doppelganger dollars exist, they're non-self-extinguishing. All of the other dollars are imagined into existence uh, in a loan or a lease. But then as you pay back that principle that was borrowed, uh, it meets the debt of the, the loan record on the balance sheet and they annihilate each other. Those dollars vanish. So a million dollars comes into existence and over a 30 year period, that million dollars is going to be extinguished. So we are always borrowing currency into existence and then extinguishing it. by. So there's more loans, always a little bit more loans being made than paid. And that's the growth to the currency supply. But there, it's all dollars are appearing and then vanishing. This is the difference between real money and currency. Currency mm -hmm. doesn't vanish; <laughs> it's real. And so, uh, um, uh, if these dollar doppelganger dollars exist, they're non-self-extinguishing. It's the origination of that. The, your payments on your mortgage are going to pay off the mortgage-backed security. Not the the that loan is no longer on the balance sheet, and it was just monetized a second time by the Federal Reserve buying it and creating the dollars on the same asset twice. Uh, if it's true, this violates the uh, you know the foundations of accounting, uh, and so you know I'm not positive, but the evidence is there that says that this is probably true. Otherwise, I don't know where this other. $2.7 trillion, and, and it's right there on the Fed's balance sheet as mortgage-backed securities. You need that to fill this hole between loans and leases and deposits that are out there. There's more. There's $7 trillion more deposits than there are loans and leases. Fed's balance sheet was $9 trillion if you deduct the currency in circulation, because that's not in deposits, that's currency in circulation. You deduct that two trillion, and you come out with the seven trillion dollars, which requires the mortgage two point seven mortgage-backed securities to be part of that seven trillion. You can't; it doesn't add up to seven trillion dollars if you don't have the mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's all in there. Chapter four is one of the most important things to if somebody can read that and comprehend it, and that's the reason I broke it down. This has been rewritten so many times. In fact, I'm so glad I took it out of the book. This was all done in the book was going to be published in October. 
but because of paper shortages and cardboard shortages, we couldn't get the, the printer to print it. And then once it was printed, the it's been a nightmare dealing with Amazon to try and set up an Amazon store and get these shipped and everything else. But um, uh, I, when I wrote this, I wrote it in Microsoft Word, and uh, we did it in eight and a half by 11 format, double spaced. And when we put it into the uh, spacing to put it on a book page, it ended up to be a, a very large book. And with, uh, this is all color. This is a very high quality book mm -hmm. inside. That's actually uh, all, what's, what struck me as well. All the charts are color, everything, yeah. the titles are and, color. It's beautiful. Right. And you can see even the quality of the paper is very high. And so it's not a cheap book to produce. And it was going to end up being 50 or 60 bucks. <laughs> and so I had to cut a lot out of it. And uh, two of the things that were, one of them that was expendable is the tutorial on charts, chapter three. But it's, I think it's, a, uh, people should read it. I think they're going to be highly entertained. And there's going to be a couple of things in there about correlations and when a section called the axes of evil where you can put axis on two sides of the chart and you can create a chart that lies to people mm -hmm. so you need to know how your perception can be skewed you need to know the difference between log and linear charts and so on uh, but chapter four covers the mechanics of the monetary system how wealth has been transferred from main street to wall street and uh how it is ripping our country apart at the seams and creating all this wealth disparity that people are blaming on capitalism. It's not capitalism. It is the modern monetary system that does this. It's just part of the mechanics of it. And Ben Bernanke, uh, his ideas have really shown this. And when you get down to uh, the chapter called Reverse Robin Hoods, how uh, the Federal Reserve and the monetary system uh, steals from the poor and middle class every second of every day and gives it to the wealthiest people on the planet. Uh, you know, it shows what's in people's checking accounts and the different uh, the uh, different aggregate the portions of the population, like the bottom ninety percent and the top ten percent. Uh, and when you see the wealth transfer that has gone on since two thousand eight, this is tragic, and it's it is something that is creating all of this division that you see in the country and the backlash can be something if there is, you know, there's this socialistic backlash happening right now. Uh, there are certain age groups where socialism is more popular than, than capitalism. If, and if I could, nothing. if I could interrupt for just a second, Mike, yeah. I, I literally right before this interview, there's a new stat out. It's four out of 10 Canadians. I don't know why they didn't simplify it to two out of five, but four out of 10 Canadians from the ages of, I believe it was 18 to 25 would prefer socialism as their, as their economic system. All I've got to say is name a socialist society that has worked. It's been tried so many times in the past, a few dozen times in the, in the last century, you know, the USSR, was the, the uh, United Soviet Socialist Republic, China under Mao. This is, you know, when Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, he used socialism and, and communism interchangeably. It meant the same thing mm -hmm. when he wrote that. Now people think that socialism means Sweden. 
for some reason. And it doesn't. The former prime minister of Sweden had to come out and say, no, we are a capitalist society with a lot of social programs, but our economy is based on capitalism. And it's the only thing that has created uh, prosperity throughout the world. And there is a think tank in Canada called the Fraser Institute. And they publish uh, an annual report called uh, Economic Freedom of the World. And when you take all, they've got, there's a hundred and, um, I think there's a hundred and sixty-five or seventy, hundred, some hundred and sixty-seven countries that now produce reliable economic data. And you take the size of their government compared to the GDP, the levels of their taxation, the fairness uh, and and lack of corruption in the court system, the soundness of their currency, whether it's uh, you know being debased rapidly or whatever, uh, the uh, ability to trade in you know um, freedom of trade, uh, the ability to go anywhere on the planet, buy, sell, import, export, invest in anything you want, and bring back the proceeds without a bunch of barriers, taxation, duties, uh, and regulation. And then the regulation of all of the markets, the labor market, the uh, capital markets, uh, but especially small business. You over-regulate small businesses and you crush an economy. But you put all of these things into a spreadsheet. You hit sort. And what you find out is that the countries that are the most, they, they separated into four quartiles. The top 25%, those people live almost 15 years longer than the bottom 25% where the government is trying to provide everything. Venezuela is at the bottom of the list. North Korea isn't even on there because you can't get economic data from North Korea. But Venezuela used to be way up near the middle. And they, since Hugo Chavez took over in the late 90s and then Maduro, they've dropped down to the very bottom of the list. And the average Venezuelan has lost 19 pounds over that time period. Uh, socialism causes sh uh, shortened lifespan and a uh, it, it causes more poverty and death and the backlash to what the Federal Reserve is creating with the, this uh, currency creation, QE, and this wealth transfer that it, it causes from the middle class and the poor to the richest people on the planet. Uh, I'm, I'm really afraid of this uh, wealth transfer, because if socialism wins out, I can almost guarantee that all of our lifespans are going to be shorter. Just download economic freedom of the world and read it. This is this isn't um, somebody's opinion. This is Microsoft Excel, just taking numbers and mm -hmm. spitting them back at you. And it shows that capitalism wins the whole um, uh, mission of hidden secrets of money and my mission is to enlighten the world that maximum prosperity can only be achieved through individual freedom, free markets, and sound money. And this is the absolute truth. And you can look at this throughout history. You can measure one country against another, and it just keeps on being proven true time after time. Mm -hmm. Mike, when we're talking about the amount of currency that was pushed into the markets and the, the lack of consumer price inflation that it ended up causing, let's say after the great financial crisis by what metrics can we look at the current financial environment and try to understand if we are in an everything bubble as you as you noted earlier well it's 
it's not the everything bubble. It's the almost every. You know, I was one of the first people to call it the everything bubble years and years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, wait a minute, gold and silver aren't in a bubble. They're undervalued compared to these other assets that have climbed so much. You look at the currency inflows into cryptocurrencies, into real estate, and into the stock market, and gold and silver are lagging. Well, that's an opportunity um, because everything else is in massive bubbles. It's currently deflating, but it is, has no, by no means come anywhere near fair value historically. And you can measure these values with ratio charts. Uh, if you're measuring, uh, you know, you have to use like bushels of wheat or tons of iron against a house or shares of, of uh, the Dow or the S&P 500 or something like that. And you can see that this growth of the currency supply has warped the economy. Um, one of the things I came up years ago, there was a, a piece cut from my first book, Guide to Investing in Gold and Silver, which came out in 2008, just before the market crash. And I had predicted the market crash, you know, that there will be some sort of correction coming uh, in the book. And boy, <laughs> book came out in July. Uh, and it was officially out in August, actually, but people were actually buying it on Amazon in late July. And by October, we were in the middle of a full-blown crash. Uh, and the book became a very good seller because of that. But in there, I had uh, one of the pieces that was cut was a section that was, I don't know, three or four pages long on something I call cup inflation, C-U-P-P, -P, currency units per person. <laughs> how many currency units exist for the size of, of a given population. And uh, the it's based on the simple fact every unit of currency must go somewhere. So if it didn't inflate savings, it inflated the stock market. If it didn't inflate the stock market, it inflated real estate. When they're measuring CPI, they don't measure savings, the stock market, and real estate. They're, they're only measuring the items at the grocery store and your gasoline and things like that, consumer items. And so when they create currency, uh, there is something called the uh, Cantillon effect. Richard Cantillon, uh, it was 18-something. He came up with the this uh, theory that when new currency is created, it inflates the sector that it go, flows into first. And he was absolutely right. Uh, and... Uh, and that is what has happened because quantitative easing can only be done through primary dealers and they are restricted to buying uh, government uh, guaranteed uh, securities. Uh, that means that the markets have to inflate first. Uh, if the Federal Reserve also, so that's quantity of currency. The other thing is cost of currency, interest rates. If you take interest rates down, what does that affect most? The banks then create a whole bunch of loans for real estate. And so it increases the currency supply by us borrowing currency into existence. Uh, and so the two things that have inflated during this whole episode since Ben Bernanke came up with QE and took interest rates down to zero back in 2008 is everything has flowed into those asset classes first. Now some of it is flowing out into retail goods and services at the same time that the government decided to send everybody checks directly. And so the Federal Reserve buys an asset. They buy cash flow from our future taxation, which is an enslavement tool. We all have to work and, and pay future. I mean, 
if you asked everybody to just volunteer, I mean, I'd gladly pay 10% of my income, but the way they've got the, uh, the reason I'm down in Puerto Rico is because of the special tax advantages that Puerto Rico has down here. When I was in California, there were a couple of years where my total tax bill was more than 50% of my income. And I left. I, California lost uh, an employer that was employing numerous people. And, uh, and you know, I moved down to Puerto Rico. And uh, uh, so uh, every unit of currency has to go somewhere. When it, the, the best measurement of inflation is how many units of currency exist for the number of people and divided by the goods and services that it can that they can buy with it. So the quantity of goods and services. So uh, Milton Friedman's equation really didn't have the number of people in it, but it was uh, the quantity of currency times the velocity of the currency, how often it's circulated, uh, equals uh, uh, price times GDP. So the price of stuff times the uh, uh, number, the amount of goods and services. And that was his license plate on his car. Uh, and it's part of the quantity theory of, of he, he said money, but it's the quantity theory of currency. Mm -hmm. And it, I believe it's over the long run, it's absolutely true. Recently, I wrote uh, something called an open letter to Keynesians. And I was saying, I can't remember the exact numbers now, but it was like, uh, if quantity has nothing to do, because you know, Keynesians will argue that it, that it isn't the quantity, you know, it's, it's uh, and if it has nothing to do with uh, directly with prices, how come over the long period of time that uh, something in the United States that is uh, a $10 uh, combo meal at a fast food restaurant uh, is $10 in the United States, 100 or a unit, I, I just said measured in each country's national currency. And then I just put the number 10 in the United States, 130 in Japan, 3,200 in, in North in South Korea, uh, and uh, 70,000 in Venezuela. And, uh, and then a, a base model Volkswagen Golf, uh, 30,000 30, in the United States. And I believe it was like, I don't know, 300 billion or something in Venezuela. <laughs> it's, uh, it's all quantity. I, I was amazed when I went to Colombia and you end up paying millions of pesos to take a cab from the airport to your hotel. Uh, and that is quantity that did that. Uh, and so uh, the Keynesians need to explain that the next time they come up with the, the this idea that they can just expand the currency supply and it's going to fix everything. How come a country that is dirt, I mean, in um, I've got a, a one, uh, $1 Zimbabwe note. Now, when Rhodesia became Zimbabwe, I believe the exchange rate was a buck 56 for one Zimbabwe dollar. So the, um, the Zimbabwe dollar was 50%, had 50% more purchasing power than the US dollar. So I've got a 2007 $1 bill from Zimbabwe that would purchase something and a 2008 $100 trillion Zimbabwe note that would, by the time they got printed in Germany and landed in Zimbabwe, they were worthless. And so I bought these bricks of them uh, <laughs> where it was uh, bundles of 100, $100 trillion bills and in wrapped in this brick of, of 10 of these things or 20 of these things. So I can't remember how many quintillion dollars I had sitting on my desk 
And I used to, when I'd send, when um, our supplier was sending out books, because uh, uh, Brinks Security would ship out the gold and silver. And for a while, we would give anybody that ordered a free book with the gold and silver. And we I'd have them stick a $100 trillion bill in there as That's a awesome. bookmark. <laughs> but the fact that in one year, from 2007 to 2008, one bought something, a hundred trillion was worthless. And the thing is, you know, in in here, I pretty much prove in the first chapter the difference between currency and money, and that no nation on earth today uses money. And I say, you know, when I show these different bills from the United States and how they sort of fooled us and weaned us off of real money onto this currency that they can imagine into existence. I said, it just goes to show you that if you take a piece of paper, you put some fancy scrolls and curly cues on it, some numbers, and a picture of a very well-respected dead guy, you can get anybody to fall for anything, hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> and you can. We have all been hoodwinked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, along those lines, Mike, when we think about the the amount of debt, the amount of printing, that devaluation of that currency in the U.S., have we passed the point of no return? Um, well, what sort of determines the past the point of no return is the way our politicians are doing deficit spending. I mean, we just voted in these enormous deficits. Now, there's a difference between the budget deficit and the actual deficit and the national debt. People get deficit and debt mixed up a lot. So the budget deficit is they Congress comes up with a budget and they plan on going this much deeper into debt. They're going to spend more that much more than their income for that fiscal year. Then something happens. Along comes a crisis and tax revenues uh, fall, but they're still going to spend the same amount that's in the budget. So the the actual deficit, the budget deficit, and the actual deficit are different. So the the real deficit. Now, if you accumulate. All of the real deficits, that is the national debt. All of the real deficits stacked one on top of another. And I think it was about back in 20, I don't know, 14 or 17, I had a researcher go and um, uh, get the uh, budget surplus or deficit off of the Fed's website. And it goes back to 1960 and add them all up and then take the change in the national debt from that date to today. <laughs> the, the difference was, I can't remember the amount. It was also like a, a $7 trillion difference. It was huge. Uh, it's, it's about 50% greater than adding together these budget deficits and surpluses would have predicted. Uh, so the politicians are almost always wrong, but they plan to spend us into a hole and in chapter six uh, of uh, Great Gold and Silver Rush of the 21st century, the end of that chapter, I show a graph, and this is what determines the point of no return. It's that after World War II, if the US borrowed $1 and we went $1 deeper into national debt, we would get between six and $8 growth in GDP. Therefore, going into debt, would help get us out of debt. You could borrow your way to prosperity back then. But as we increase the national debt, the cost of interest payments goes up uh, and, and uh, we've, we've 
come from a time where uh, people were very debt averse in the private economy. And uh, people uh, built things like businesses and uh, real estate. And then all of the kids uh, inherited this in the uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, and uh, learned that, especially since interest rates were coming down through that time period, that you could then refinance this stuff, pull a bunch of cash out and do something else with it. And so as a society, we've gone deeper and deeper into debt. But just the uh, there's a chart at the end of uh, chapter six uh, that shows that now when it's it's been this constant downtrend from borrowing one dollar and having eight dollars of GDP. Now, when we borrow a dollar, we get 50 cents return on GDP. In, in other words, we go and for every dollar we borrow. We're going to go 50 cents deeper into the hole. And so uh, we, we are past the point of no return where we can borrow our way to prosperity. There is no easy way out of this. Uh, and uh, people really need to read all of this and try and get this is the I, what I was trying to do. The reason this book is not some huge intimidating book with every fact in it, but it, it packs all of this very densely. Uh, into the book is so that people can read this and try and hold it all in their mind at once and see the big picture. And when you do that, you see uh, what the outcome might be in the future, uh, because you've got all of the facts that are the basis that create the future. Mm -hmm. So as you say, we're we're really past the point of no return here. And obviously, you know, you see gold and silver being real solutions to this and, and beneficiaries of that shifting wealth cycle. Do you see clues that smart money or large entities see the tide of gold and silver of the gold and silver rush and are accumulating these metals? Yes. Uh, first of all, central banks have now purchased more uh, gold recently than at any time in history, even when we were under the gold standard. Uh, and uh, it's all the Eastern Central Banks. It's China, it's India, it's it's uh, Russia, it's uh, uh, Turkey. Uh, and uh, that says that they think that something is up, right? And they're going they're they're trying to accumulate this safe haven asset. And then the other thing is, I do show a chapter in there, a uh, very short chapter. I probably should have put it online because this may change. But um, the commodities exchange where the price of gold and silver is set. It's set on the London exchange and the COMEX, the commodities exchange, uh, which is now in New York. Um, and uh, the, these exchanges trade futures contracts. And it can be sometimes, uh, there. there is some metal in the vault there, and there's some in the registered category where it's available for delivery into one of these contracts. But with silver, sometimes there would be 300 or 500 ounces sold in contracts for each ounce that's actually in the vaults. So it's a fractional reserve scheme. Now, when COVID hit, uh, there was this sudden panic. And for some reason, the COMEX needed to increase its inventories like, I don't know, fourfold or something like that. And it was very interesting when you look at all of the international flows China has been accumulating steadily for, for you know, many, many, many years. 
uh, I think the charts go back to, um, you know, uh, 2005 or something, and they accumulate all the time. You take official plus uh, Shanghai and uh, and Hong Kong uh, imports for their, their exchanges, and there was gold flowing into China constantly. The U.S. was always a gold exporter year after year after year, and then 2020, suddenly, the rest of the world stopped accumulating gold, and only the United States accumulated enormous quantities of gold. And then the amount that has been taken off of the COMEX, if you um, corrected for this, this, this um, enormous increase, and now it's going down, if you corrected, if you took out that enormous increase, there's more that's been taken out of the COMEX than existed on the COMEX before mm -hmm. uh, this, the, the COVID crash, the panic there. And so I, I do believe that there are some very, very large, powerful entities that are getting ready for something very, very big. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, one, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because <clears throat> my first book also, when you look at any society, that society is what, what they are is determined by the middle class. The middle class is usually about 70% of a country's population and their vote determines the direction of that country. When the middle class is impoverished, that's when you see the rise of somebody like Hitler or people following somebody like Mao or Lenin. Uh, it's when, whenever the middle class is impoverished and they become scared that they look towards somebody very, very powerful. And I just, I worry about that actually. And so I wrote my first book, to try to prevent that, to try to uh, get as much gold and silver into the hands of the middle class, something that rises, because gold and silver uh, are, they're, they're almost uh, the anti-US uh, dollar, stock market, bond market, uh, uh, they are, they go, they rise, uh, you know, you look at when uh, the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine started, gold and silver when they geopolitical tensions mm -hmm. uh they uh are the crisis hedge they're not necessarily an inflation hedge or this hedge or that hedge they are a crisis hedge and they're the place that, that you can rely on it uh everything else requires the performance of a counterparty gold and silver are the only thing that you can buy take delivery of and even even real estate if you want to sell the real estate, you've got to transact through a bank. There's escrow and all of that. Uh, an ounce of gold is just something that you own. There's, it's not like if you own a stock, that company has to do well and, uh, and not go bankrupt. And then there's, uh, the stock exchange and your brokerage house that also have to perform their function for that to have any value in a crisis. Are all of these things going to be there? Gold and silver that you own outright will be there. It's guaranteed. And that's one of the reasons all of the Eastern central banks are starting to accumulate in such quantity. You know, it's interesting that you bring up that example of the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine. You also use the words unaffordium and unobtainium when describing the day that everybody wants these metals or, you know, worse, a, a catastrophic situation, a terrorist attack, something like that. I actually did an interview with a gentleman from Russia, one of the listeners of our show, right after the war started in, in Ukraine. And he he used those same words of unaffordium and unobtainium. He couldn't get gold. 
he couldn't get cash, but he, you know, going through the education of learning about the things that you and I both talk about, he was more prepared and he was grateful for the, the fact that he did have some gold and some silver and some cash on hand. Yes. Well, th- when I talk about onophorium and onobtanium, uh, part of what I'm talking about in that chapter is that if you wait until the very end, until you absolutely need these things, that's when it becomes very, very difficult to get and very, very expensive to get. We have a at goldsilver.com, we've got a very high rating as far as customer service goes and, and uh, all of those things, delivery. Uh, but whenever there's a rush, our rating goes down. Why? It's a business. We've got we we've got a certain number of employees, and then suddenly the business increases tenfold during a crisis, and we can't ramp up. We can't we don't, can't just instantly call in ten times more employees to mm-hmm. service everybody. It's like you know you you go to your sur- supermarket, and there's parking for a hundred cars. What happens if one day a thousand cars all want to show up at the same time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> People can't get in the doors. There's not enough sh- shopping carts. That is the situation. And so uh, you you can't say, oh, well, you know, just, no, you know, people used to uh, ask me when I thought this would happen, when the crisis will happen. And I would try to answer, well, you know, it could be this long, could be that long, and this could trigger it and so on. And then a business associate took me aside after a couple of years of watching this and said, Mike, you know what they're really asking you? And I had no clue. They're asking you when it will happen so that they can say, well, notify me and I will buy then. Until then, I want to stay in the stock market <laughs> and gamble in, in this area. Well, you know, even just 10% of a portfolio in precious metals, first of all, uh, precious metals has outperformed the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones since the year 2000 by about 300%. It's been the best performing asset class of this century. Uh, We have been in a mid-cycle correction since 2011, though, that we haven't completely gotten out of yet. So uh, it depends on when you, if you want to start measuring it, from 2011, it's a it's been a poor pro- performing asset. If you want to measure it from the bottom in 2015 or the bottom in 2001, it's an excellent performing asset. But for this century, uh, it has beaten the stock market. It's beaten bonds, and it's also at, 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 with this performance. Like I have a a tube of 20 gold eagles where I paid 325 dollars each for these things, and right now they're about 2,000 dollars each, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so that was a great investment, and it's something that I can actually hold in my hand that has no counterparty risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if the internet went out, went down, if there was no power, if we had a, um, a you know a uh, EMP uh, bomb, uh, the, the electromagnetic pulse bomb disrupt the internet and the power grid, or uh, a uh, solar, a, a mass coronal ejection, coronal mass ejection, or whatever you call it, I can't remember, uh, that just wiped out the power grid. Gold and silver still work. They're still there. <laughs> and uh, and you can put them in your pocket and you can go across borders and things like that. There is, you're supposed to declare anything over $10,000 of value, uh, including gold and silver. However, 
Canadian maple leaves and uh, and uh, U.S. gold and silver eagles have a face value on them. And customs is supposed, I can't guarantee it. So I'm not saying that this is the way that, that each government is going to look at it. Mm -hmm. But I got a, a letter from the a determination from the government of Canada. And then the one of the coinage acts uh, says that these are supposed to be respected at face value. And I do know instances where people have crossed a border with like $400,000. But the face value of those, that was the the retail value of those coins, but the face value added up to less than 10,000 because a U.S. gold eagle says $50 on it and it's worth almost 2,000 and a uh, Canadian maple leaf, I think uh, a, <laughs> this is a silly part. With both of these governments, I think that it's just some clerk that makes up this stuff. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the one ounce, the half ounce, quarter ounce, 10th ounce, uh, let me see, I think a uh, one ounce is, is five Canadian dollars, a one ounce maple leaf, and a uh, tenth ounce is one. So if you go in, <laughs> you can you can get, you take in one ounce, you're going to get two back if you ask for change at face value. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like they, they don't, they won't do that. But uh, the thing is that these face values are just a bunch of, crap <laughs> they're not real some clerk just how much should we put on this one oh slap ten dollars on that one <laughs> they make it up if you look at the the u.s dollar it's defined as uh uh as uh i think it's eight i can't remember the exact weight but it's about three quarters of an ounce of silver mm -hmm. um, but then they put uh one dollar on the one ounce silver eagle so you've got uh, $1 that's one ounce and $1, the, the old silver dollars that are about three quarters of an ounce. I think it's 0.72 ounces. Uh, and <laughs> this just goes, there. there is the U.S. trade dollar, which is an old silver dollar that's another weight of silver. Uh, that was used in trade with China, and I think we were trying to cheat China. <laughs> and so uh, it just goes on and on with all of these idiotic things. I'm on the record for many times saying gold standards suck. Gold is great, but a gold standard where you're using a fiat national currency to represent a certain weight of gold just opens the door for this whole scam to start all over again. But there's no reason that you couldn't price things in grams of gold or nanograms of gold or grams or, or, or yeah, it'd be better to use grams, grams of silver. Um, and trade would work just fine and you would have this thing where you're trading something of value. The amount of work and effort and time and the rarity of it equals the value of the thing that you're buying. It's a fair, honest trade, not dishonest and deceptive. When you when the bank imagines a million dollars into your account for that house that you're going to buy, and you buy a house with a million dollars, you're trading nothing for something of value. And that is dishonest. It's fraud. It's theft. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike, I think that's a, a pretty good place to kind of leave, leave things for today. We didn't go over half the, or less than half the things in the book. You know, there's some of the juicier bits like the, the $7 trillion theft, modern slavery, an economy on life support is Bitcoin money, 
there's all those all those topics that you cover in the book yeah, as well. You just touched mostly on things that are on in chapter four, which is available for free for anybody. You can download it, email them to anybody you want. You've got my permission. Uh, at, that's at ggsr21.com. But the point of the book, when you get to uh, chapter seven, is the difference between the bull market of the 70s and today. And that bull market was one of the biggest, it was the biggest bull market in history until uh, cryptocurrencies. But um, uh, in the 70s, most of the, the people that drove the price of gold up 25 times and silver up 41 times during the decade of the 70s was a very, very small percentage of the population. From, uh, from 1970 to 74, in the U.S., it was illegal to own gold until the first day of 1975. In Australia, 1976. In the USSR, there were no markets, there were no exchanges, and it was illegal to own gold. Uh, in China, under Mao, it was illegal to own gold. You could be put to death for uh, hoarding gold in China. Um, there were laws against uh, the purchase of, of gold bars uh, in India, uh, Japan had bans on trading gold. There was an exchange in Hong Kong and uh, Singapore, but very, very, very small. The price of gold was set by 5% of the po world's population from 70 to seven, the end of 74. And then from the end of 75 to 1980, about 10% of the world's population. Western Europe and Canada uh, in the early 70s and in the late 70s, the US and Australia joined the party. But other than that, there was starvation going on around the world. In Africa, there were no markets, no exchanges, and, and the population was devastatingly poor. Same thing in South America, Mexico. Uh, so most of the world could not participate. They were worried about uh, getting enough to eat the next day, not what to invest in. Mm -hmm. Today, there are 18 times more people that can legally invest in gold and have resources. There are billionaires in all of these on all of these continents now. You should see how many billionaires there are in the different countries. It's in the book. There's a, mm -hmm. a, a, a map with the numbers of billionaires in different areas. But there are um, there every there's 18 times more people, 55 times more currency on the planet, um, uh, 56 times more uh millionaires 200 times more billionaires 220 times more available consumer credit and when people get scared all of that is going to try and chase this same safe haven asset and the amount of gold that's available has only doubled wherever so there's about 25 times more units of currency that should come chasing gold and silver this time around than when they chased gold and silver in the great bull market of the 70s and drove gold up 25 times and silver 41. That's the point of the book. Uh, and so I urge people to at least read the free chapters, uh, mm -hmm. chapter three and chapter four. But uh, if you really want to have the knowledge to sort of be able to see everything that's going on in the economy and get prepared, uh, you know, buy the whole book. <laughs> there will be a, a cheaper black and white version of the book coming. It'll take a few months. There will be an ebook coming for even less than that. But uh, that's 
you can't just take this book and drop it into an ebook format and it works. It's a lot of work. Everything starts jumping around. It's got to be responsive, it's called. So you can read it on a cell phone or a tablet or whatever. And you drop this book into an e-reader and suddenly uh, there's uh, uh, charts that are all alone on a page with no text with them. <laughs> just bizarre stuff happens. So we're doing all of that work now. These will come out. Uh, but right now, I only have the color version of this book, and it's $39. So I apologize for the price. For anybody that thinks that's too expensive for a paperback, there is a cheaper one coming, and an ebook and an audio book. I'll be going in this week to uh, read this at a studio uh, for the audio book. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, it's good to hear that, that it's going to be your voice reading it. Yeah, it, it's a lot of work. You know, you're, I bet. you're spending about four hours. You can't do more than about four hours of a, a day mm -hmm. without your voice changing and then getting tired and starting to make a lot of mistakes. And so uh, it takes more than a week uh, of going into the studio every day uh, to do this. So we'll see how it goes. So yeah, well, most people, if they if they want, they can start with chapter three and four, like you said. Totally for free, totally available online at ggsr21.com. And of course, your website for anybody that wants more of your videos or anything like that, goldsilver.com. Anywhere else you'd like to share, Mike? Well, there's you can look us up on YouTube too. Just Google Mike Maloney and you'll see, uh, you know, or do an internet search on Mike Maloney or a YouTube search. Mm -hmm. And Hidden Secrets of Money is always a good price, even though... Uh, you know, we started filming this uh, uh, more than 10 years ago, uh, and it was um, so a lot of it was filmed back in 2010. But um, it follows the history of uh, of money and this transition to currency. And it shows th there are other shows that have been done on the history of money, but none of them. Uh, make comparisons to what happened in the past to what's happening today and how it affects your life. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was Im important for people to know that, you know, uh, Athens went through the first great inflation in, uh, from uh, the, like, I think from 428 or 429 BC to 407 BC. Uh, but that inflation was caused by uh, war and that, this was a society with a working tax system. They would take in uh, gold and silver coins and then add base metals to them. Melt down the gold, add 50% copper. Melt down the silver, add 50% copper. Now you can mint twice as many coins. <laughs> what is that called? Deficit spending. You're spending twice as much as your income. It diluted the currency supply, just like they're doing today. And it was responsible for the end of the uh, great period of the Greek uh um you know when athens was the pinnacle of world society uh it it brought down that society uh and it was all economic uh manipulation uh and inflation whenever you do inflation you're stealing the purchasing power from your own population and transferring it to the government so the government can outspend its opponent um and you know sometimes you win the war sometimes you lose but sometimes you win the war and you 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 lose the war because you lose your society because of the inflation that you cause. <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, Hidden Secrets of Money, there's 10 episodes. Uh, 
One episode, I toured the Bundesbank Monetary Museum, but I've toured the New York Fed, the uh, the Bank of England, the Bundesbank, Australia's Money Museum, uh, the Money Museum in Beijing, China, uh, uh, Japan. Uh, so I've I've been to most of the world's great monetary museums, and I've seen just about every. The the only reason that that's important is that I've seen just about every medium of exchange that mankind has ever used. And you can see this natural evolution toward gold and silver throughout the centuries. And uh, and you can also see the uh, way that uh, they have, they weaned us off of gold and silver and convinced us to work for these stupid pieces of paper that have been uh, ruined because you can't even once they've printed it into a bill, you can't use it to write a list on. So it's it's actually a piece of paper that has been ruined, but it's got numbers on it. It's got curly cues. It's got a picture of a well-respected dead guy. So we actually work for this thing. And what's even more amazing is that you can buy something real with these. <laughs> but it has enabled the national currencies have, have enabled countries to control populations to steal wealth from their own populations. And uh, and they do it with this smoke and mirrors that people can't see through. And this was written to help you see through the veil, the veil that this fog, this smoke and mirrors that surrounds the global monetary system and the financial system. Excellent, Mike. Well, I think that's a, a great place to leave it for today. I really appreciate your time and coming on the show to, to help explain some of these ideas to our audience. Thank you. It was great being here. Thanks, Mike. Take care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.